So will you, you're not going to, so there won't be a prayer then. You're just going right. to do That's this. Right. Yes. 
That's right. We're going to do the confession of faith, and then it's time for the choir. Okay. I need to make sure Joel knows that. That's what I was wondering. Okay. Let me tell her that. Okay. We don't start with that. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and I want to offer all of you, whether you are a first-time visitor or a long-time attender or member, uh, welcome you to worship this morning. So whether you are in person or on the live stream, we are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us, and it is our heartfelt prayer that this will be a rich time of exalting and enjoying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we hope you got the swag bag out front that has all sorts of goodies in it and lets you know a little bit about who we are and just kind of makes an introduction to us. And I would like to ask all of you, if you're sitting on the end of your aisle, to get started the friendship pad, and that is whether you are visiting or whether you are, again, like I said, a longtime attender or member, pass that down. This gives us the opportunity to get to know you a little bit. A few brief announcements before we enter into worship. This afternoon at 4 o'clock, a very special community Easter concert will be hosted by First United Methodist Church. It begins at 4 p.m. Several members of our choir will be participating. I don't have the exact number, but uh, several members. I'm seeing four. Jocelyn's giving me four fingers, so maybe, maybe nine are going to show up at 4 o'clock. I have no idea. But the bottom line is uh, a great opportunity. We would encourage you to join in that community venture to bear witness to the glory of Christ together as they will be doing that. Now we're getting ready for Holy Week, which begins next Sunday with Palm Sunday. Now, if you have kids or grandkids, whether they're here all the time or be visiting, Valerie Hunt would love to have them join her Meet her out in the hall, this hallway here where the name tags are and all that. 
at 1020. During our opening hymn, they are going to be processing down the aisle with palm branches. And I just think that is going to be just such an encouraging and exciting time. We want to encourage all the kids to participate in that. Contact or see Valerie if you have any questions regarding that. And then on Thursday evening, which is April 14th, we will have our Monday Thursday service. We'll also be taking the Lord's Supper that particular evening. Good Friday, if you get the opportunity from noon to 1245, will be our Good Friday service. And then Easter Sunday, we begin, let's hope it's a day like today. Maybe six degrees warmer, something like that. Not a whole lot, not too, we don't want 92 with 190% humidity, but you know, 72, something like that, 9 a.m. Just, I just want you to picture this. We're in the pavilion, you know, we're kind of moving forward from that disease, that virus, COVID thing. We don't want to, don't want to say that anymore, but we're moving forward out of that. We're enjoying time together, celebrating the resurrection, feasting together. Now, let me speak about feasting. My good friend Brent Johansson, he's going to be back there at the sign-up table. He hasn't told, he's waving his arms back there. He's getting charismatic on us. He is ready... He is so excited to worship the Lord and extend worship out till after the service where you can still, it is not too late to sign up to bring bacon. (laughs) You can never have enough bacon. And Brent will tell you what else we need in terms of that sign-up sheet. But sign up. Also, if you could help out with setting up or cleaning up, we would love to have the opportunity. See Brent and Carol after the service and they'll let you know. And then, of course, at 10.30, we have our Easter celebration, and we want it to be a joyous time where we celebrate truly what is our ultimate hope, and it's what sustains us through each day, and that is the victory of Christ in the resurrection. The fact that our hope is God's new world that's been inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I hope you're looking forward to Holy Week. I think it promises to be a real exciting time around here. It's also an opportunity to any of these services to invite friends and neighbors. I mean, I'm looking, I still see empty chairs. We don't want to see empty chairs during Holy Week, and especially during Easter Sunday. There are many, many people who come to church only on Christmas and Easter. This is an opportunity. It's kind of more culturally acceptable. You can invite them to come to worship or come to the brunch, get to know people, for those services, so I want to share that as well. So those are some of the things going on in the life of the church. We're real encouraged about what the Lord is doing. And so now as the prelude is played, let's quiet our hearts as we prepare to worship the Lord.
glorify thy name in all the earth. No matter what kind of week you've had, whether it's been a joyous week and you're on the mountaintop or whether it's been a difficult week and you're barely surviving, God invites you. God calls you to bring your entire self into his presence. Fears, doubts, joys, sorrows, bring all of you into his presence where he receives you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our call to worship is from Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Father, may you create joy in the hearts of your people, fullness of life as we are in your presence to exalt you. Thank you for who you are. We invoke your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be with us. We need your presence. We need your comfort. We need your mercy. We need you. Fill us now as we praise and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise, O Worship the King, All Glorious Above. Our need of confession this morning comes from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. And the context of this particular psalm is, this is the repentance of King David. 
after King David was confronted by the prophet Nathan concerning his sinfulness with Bathsheba and Uriah. And David said, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Isn't it amazing, even in David's repentance, how confident that he is in the Lord? There's no blame shifting. There's no saying, somebody else made me do it. He's honest about his sins. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. He is owning his stuff right there. He says, against you, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your right, so that no matter what you do, you're justified. No matter what you do with me, I surrender to you. Friends, take a few moments and personally confess. I always call this time a time of doing business with God. This is a time for us personally and individually to do business with God, to come clean with him. And then in a few moments, I will begin to lead us in prayer. Join together as we pray our corporate confession of sin in unison together. Let's pray. Let us pray together. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Friends, based on the work of Jesus Christ, receive the assurance of pardon. David prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Friends, isn't it amazing that in the depths of our sinfulness, God invites us to plunge our sins into the heart of Jesus Christ. 
How shocking, how amazing, how astounding it is that God can demonstrate his own love for us in this, that even while we were still sinners, we don't have it together. We haven't arrived. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why David could pray, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Let's stand and sing together, praising God for his mercy. Thy mercy, my God. be seated. One of the goals I have for worship is that our time of worship would just be saturated with Scripture. We pray the Scriptures. We confess the Scriptures. We preach the Scriptures. We teach the Scriptures. We recite the Scriptures. And so we're going to have now our confession of faith, the summary of what the Scriptures teach the Apostles' Creed, that unites us together. And immediately following that, you know, there's a little change in our order. Our Lord's Prayer and pastoral prayer will be a response. You know, you hear the Word of God, and then you are called to respond. That's the rhythm of worship. So we're going to recite together, acknowledge what it is we believe in the Apostles' Creed, and I want to make sure the ushers are ready. Then we will have our offertory and do that. So I'm making sure I kind of lead us along here as we do this. So... Friends, what is it that we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I invite the ushers forward to receive our offering.
came the morning that sealed the promise your very body mentioned to Jewel before the service, don't get embarrassed because I'm going to spend a few minutes just raving about her and the choir and because it's not a performance, this leads us to worship. And that's so important, you know, I can't help but think I'm so humbled to think that God would call me. I never dreamed when I was a younger man that I would be, I, I probably would have the high school yearbook least likely to be a Presbyterian minister. And now I think to myself, I don't want to say what I'd be most likely to do or be, 
but definitely least likely to be a Presbyterian minister. And I think church for me, I need to be a pastor because it absolutely renews my hope. I mean, the theme of coming to worship, yes, do we learn more? You're going to be like, oh, look at that. That verb says that and that. Yeah, we do all that. But that's not what our hearts need. By the way, I have to seek this up. Can I move this? Okay. Because if I don't see Susan Porter and Sue Burmeister over there, the sermon's a flop. It's absolutely, it's, it's done. I've got to be able to walk both sides and take a wide berth here and speak to all of you. I mean, the bottom line is life is hard. It is difficult. The whole theme of Romans chapter 5 to 8, and you thought, what does this have to do with the sermon? What have we been saying? New covenant theology, the fact that the covenant is fulfilled, all the promises of God are yes and amen, are presented by Paul in Romans 5 to 8 as a fulfillment of the exodus. It is a new exodus. And where we find ourselves in the Christian life is in the wilderness. And the wilderness is not kind of Bambi by the brook going, oh, isn't this nice, the four... You know, the wilderness is not that great golf course I'm going to be visiting on Thursday. You knew I had to work that in, by the way. The wilderness in scriptural imagery is dry, barren, and arid. It is hard. And what we go through in life, so much more than just physical suffering, we go through loneliness, and we go through doubts, and we go through confusion, and we go through crises of faith, and my friends, Christians ought to be the most real, the most authentic, and the most honest people on the face of the planet, because as the choir and jewel reminded us, we have a living hope. We are connected to the source and the head, Jesus Christ. And so I come because I need my hope renewed. How about you? There we go. I want to make... Thank you, Nicole. I love that. (laughs) Now, you thought that was the sermon. That's just me praising the work and ministry of the choir. Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer and dive into our text this morning. Father, I remember Tim Keller teaching us in class and seminary that the essence of worship is surprise. And obviously, that doesn't mean somebody saying boo. That means in some way we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened in a new way to see some element of the gospel, some element of your truth, some element of you made real to our hearts. And and while the choir sang, I just had that living hope made a little bit more real to me. And we're going to study Romans 7 here, where I know how much my own heart is like Teflon, and the truth can just slip and slide away so quickly, I can so easily forget it. It is a constant struggle. And you call us to embrace the struggle, to see that the struggle is real, and you don't condemn us for the struggle. The struggle is designed and meant to lead us to Jesus Christ. And so that's what I pray, that we would be led to Jesus, to see that, Jesus, you are beautiful, and that we would display that you are believable. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles if you have them. I guess your Kindles, your iPads, your iPhones, your Samsung, whatever it is whatever source to find the Word of God, Romans chapter 7, as we're continuing our study, Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given to his people by the triune God of love because he loves you. Jack Miller was the founder of World Harvest Mission. It's now called Surge out of Philadelphia. He was one of my heroes in the faith that I learned so much from. And he led a discipleship course that was called Sonship. And he gave the following illustration from the life of Samuel Johnson. Now, Samuel Johnson was an 18th century writer, literary critic. He was famous for producing a great dictionary. He was an essayist. He succeeded in writing a novel in one week, since he had to pay some debts, and was also something of a poet. He was also a professing Christian and a contemporary of both Jonathan Edwards and the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. Now, Jack Miller, in one of his sonship lectures, shared some of the famed Dr. Johnson's prayers from his journal. And so I'm going to read just a little bit from Dr. Johnson's prayer journal. And I want you to see if you can relate. In 1738, Dr. Johnson wrote, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Then in 1757, almost 20 years later, he wrote, Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time by a diligent application of the days remaining. In 1759, he also wrote, enable me to shake off sloth and idleness. He's still at it in 1761. I have resolved till I'm afraid to resolve again. In 1764, my indolence has sunk in the grosser sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness, to rise early. Still in 1764, five months later, I resolve to rise earlier, no later than six if I can. Then in 1765, he wrote, may I arise at eight? It'll be much earlier than I rise now, for I often lie till two. 1769, almost 30 years later, I'm not yet in the state to form many resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in, the, early in the morning, at eight and by degrees at six. 1775, are you doing the math, by the way? When I look back upon the resolutions of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why are you trying to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and the thought is criminal. He re resolves to rise again at eight. 
43 years later, we're now in 1781, I will not despair, help me, help me, oh my God, he resolves to rise at eight or earlier. 43 years of effort and discipline at trying to change. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does this resonate with anyone? Sound familiar? Maybe your prayer journals don't sound exactly like Dr. Johnson's. Maybe you don't even keep a prayer journal because you don't even want to face the struggles you have with sin. And I mentioned last week, so much ink is spilt. I want to address this right at the beginning over whether Paul is a believer or not in this portion of Romans chapter 7. And I happen to think he is a believer. And I'll allude, allude to this a couple of times because I only think a believer, remember a non-believer is dead in their sins. They don't have the ability. I don't think a non-believer would be able to say before the presence of God, as part of their prayer, as part of their expression to God, I have the desire to do what is right. Yes, maybe by common grace, but someone who's dead in their sin can't say, I have the desire to do what is right, or the law is spiritual, or even have the humility to say, I don't understand my own actions. I think Paul is bearing the fruit, namely humility and honesty, of being a believer here. So what do we learn? Jack Miller called Samuel Johnson's faith here the faith of an orphan. The faith of an orphan rather than the faith of a son or daughter. And in this passage before us, Romans 7, 13 to 20, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that the law, while not to blame, while being a good thing, is not adequate, is not sufficient to overcome the real problem. And the real problem is the depth of sin in the human heart. Yes, we have been free from the dominion of sin. We have been free from the tyranny of sin. We have been free from the kingdom of sin. We have not been free from the power and presence of sin. Sin is still present and influenced. So are we free from the dominion of sin? Yes. Are we free from the presence of sin? Absolutely not. And in this text, Paul is basically giving us two perspectives, two ways to look at this text and two questions of the text. First, he's asking, do you really understand yourself? Do you really know yourself? And secondly, do you understand, do you hear, are you singing the music of the gospel? You know, John Calvin said in first page, this is page one, this is the beginning of his institutes, that nearly all the knowledge we possess consists of these two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves, which leads back to knowledge of God. If you don't know yourself, you really don't know God. So Christian application right off the bat, how well do you know yourself? How well do you understand and how well do you embrace the struggle? Look with me at verse 13. 
Paul asks, did that which is good then bring death to me? He's been using this kind of diatribe style throughout this section. You know, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. What shall we say then? Since we are no longer under law, we're under grace. Shall we continue to sin? By no means. Here he goes, the same style called the diatribe style. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. In other words, what does he do? He, he's exonerating the law. But he says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. In other words, the law exposes, and as we looked at last week, helps us to truly define sin. In other words, helps us to understand ourselves. And thus, through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. See, we have to put this in context. Verse 13 is sort of acting as a bridge, connecting what comes before and the verses that follow. And what Paul is doing is he's powerfully repudiating the notion that the law is the cause of death. Verse 13 asks the question, is the law the cause of death? Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. His answer is, of course not. The law is not the cause of death. Sin is. Sin is to be blamed. Sin uses the law kind of like as a blunt instrument to capture us. We are not to blame the instrument. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary puts it this way. He says, the point being made is this. The law is not itself sinful, nor did it cause death. Sin is the ultimate cause of death. The state of affairs is that sin has taken a good thing, the law, and deployed it for its own evil purposes. See, don't we always want to avoid responsibility, especially for our own actions, especially for our own character flaws? Don't we always want to shift the blame? God asks Adam, where were you? Did you take some of the fruit? Ah, it was the woman. She made me do it. Okay. Talk about a patient God. I'll go over here. Let's talk to the woman for a second. How about you? Did you? No, it was the serpent. He made me do it. We are always looking to shift the blame. It's always somebody else's fault. Look at that, even how we tend to... Apply. This is one of the reasons I use Psalm 51 as part of our confession this morning. Because look at sometimes our typical apologies when we repent. You know, we're caught hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. We know we did it. You know, husbands, I like to pick on you because I'm a man. It's easy, you know, your wife caught you doing something. You know you're caught. You do this. And we apologize how? Sometimes we apologize with something like, I'm so sorry that you got offended. I'm so sorry you felt that way. Okay, let me tell you something right now in no unequivocal terms whatsoever. That is not an apology. No, you haven't repented. If you say, I'm sorry, you felt that way, you know what you're doing? You are skirting and deflecting responsibility and you're blaming the other person. And how's this for grace preaching? Knock it off! You haven't owned your stuff. The first point, always sermon. After a while, you're going to catch on. My sermons always are bad news, good news. That's how the scriptures go. Paul, in a very powerful way, is telling us there is no blame shifting allowed here. 
Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. So I don't, for I don't even understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Friends, can you relate to that? Whether it's a habit, whether it's a relationship, we do have the same struggles over and over again. The focus here is what indwelling sin still does to us, the state of our beings, thus our inability, our lack of resources. Paul here is applying simply what Jesus said in his upper room discourse in John chapter 15 when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say, apart from me, you love your wife or you love your spouse or you love very well. No, you don't. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And nothing means nothing. That's why Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. Do you recognize your own impotence? Do you recognize your own weakness? And do you apply it to how you conduct yourself? See, Paul has to be a believer here because this is an amazing statement of humility. And I think sometimes we get very confused as to what growth ought to look like in the Christian life. I think we adopt a little bit too much an American prosperity gospel of going, growth looks like this upward trajectory. Like this, of I'm having more victory, more victory, more victory, look at me. Where what does Paul say? I will there all the more gladly boast in my what? My weaknesses. Those are the words of an apostle. Those are the words of a Christian. See, sanctification, holiness, Christian growth, is manifested, is displayed, is seen in how we relate. Notice the fruit of the Spirit are all relational items. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They are manifested in our style of relating. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is sarcasm, causticness, abrasiveness, harshness, and being short with people but then showing discipline. The fruit of the Spirit is all relational. See, Paul is here showing us not the faith of an orphan, but the faith of a son, saying, I boast in my weaknesses. I don't understand what I do. Pretty amazing if you look at the trajectory of Paul's life and even his growth and kind of the way he described himself, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he calls himself, and this was probably written mid-50s A.D. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. So kind of like, see these 12 guys? I'm the, I'm the least of them. Ephesians chapter 3, written several years later, Paul goes, I'm the least of all the saints. Okay growing well so far, Paul, aren't you? I'm the least of these 12. Now I'm the least of the entire church. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
Paul is handing off the gospel baton to his protege, Timothy. He's getting ready to die. He's at the end of his life. So here's how he's describing sanctification in his own life. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And he doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Can I tell you something? That is victory. That is humility. That governs how he relates. He enters into interactions and conversations with the sense of, how can I ever be better than anyone else? I'm the chief of sinners. Take the worst of the worst, and I'm worse than them. I've shared this story with you before. Let me illustrate. I talked about how when I went to seminary at Westminster in Philadelphia, I knew nothing of the Reformed tradition. I knew nothing of Reformed theology. I was a young Christian, felt led to go into the ministry, felt call, was still kind of exploring stuff. So I went in and began hearing Reformed theology. Oh, I was excited. I'm called, wow, scriptures are opening up. This is great. Now, I was also at the same time very newly married. And I thought I was loving my, well, life, my wife well. If anybody had said, you know, you're not loving, I was of course I love her. Blame shift, defend. See how quickly we do that? We never admit we don't love well. But here I am in seminary, and I'm soaking up all the magnificent truths of Reformed theology, and I was what I would call myself a heretic-seeking missile. And the chief heretic? My wife. Yes, I asked her permission to share this, by the way. And I think I've told you this story before. But I would come home, and I would tell her all of these reasons why she should believe as I did. See, the importance of truth. I was, as they call him, a caged Calvinist. I'm speaking the truth in love. Or at least I'm saying I'm loving. Why? Convince myself, convince her. Jack Miller in another one of his lectures said, I am more dangerous when I am right. So the point is not whether truth is important, because it is, but it's how we say what we have to say. Remember, that's truth as well. So I went into my faculty advisor at school, who happened to be Tim Keller, and we're sitting in his car one afternoon, and I am just railing on poor Evie, saying, how can she not believe all of these things? And he just calmly looked at me, and he said, do you enjoy being the Holy Spirit? Pooh! For some reason, the Holy Spirit was working that day, and I thought to myself, maybe I don't know myself as much as I thought I did. Maybe I'm not as innocent. Maybe I shouldn't be so quick to defend myself and my actions or attitudes. Friends, look at your style of relating. Look how you come across. Not what you intend. Let me give you a daring application. Ask someone close to you, a spouse perhaps, how you come across to them. Not your intention, but your impact. Ask them the impact you have on them. And then maybe as a believer, you will understand, for I do not do what I want. And when you say that, and this is why Paul has to be a believer, look at what he says in verse 16. He says, now if I do not do what I want, I want to love my wife, but I don't do that. 
I agree that the law is good. A non-believer is not going to say, I agree that the law is good. I agree that it's showing sin to be sin. It is showing my lovelessness to be exactly that, not loving. It's showing my arrogance to be exactly what it is, arrogance. It's showing my defensiveness. It's showing my self-righteousness to be exactly what it is, a stench in the nostrils of God. Thomas Schreiner says what this means is that one cannot fully comprehend the depth of sin in oneself. The evil in our hearts is a mystery even to ourselves. And the cause, the responsibility is indwelling sin. That's why look at verses 17 and 18, bring this out. It says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Why is he saying no longer I? Because who is the true self? Who is his true self? The one who's united to Christ. The one who is, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. But sin is still present within me. It's a powerful alien force that's still there. So he says, for I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is, that is in my flesh. So it's no longer I, my true self, but sin. Why? Because my true self, how God sees me, how God deals with me, how God relates to me is who I am in Christ. Remember Romans 6. I've died with, been buried with, been raised with Jesus Christ. I am a new creation in Christ. That is what gives us the power to actually look at our sin, look at our style of relating, and I can say to my wife, yes, honey, I am a self-righteous, arrogant man. I'm so sorry that you had to marry this difficult man. Pray that God continues to change me. Yes, even over the next 43 years, like Samuel Johnson. Now, how do we begin to experience bits of transformation? We have to hear the music of the gospel. And I want you to look again with me at verse 14. Because Paul, and it's a tiny detail, it's a small detail, and it's so easy to overlook and so easy to miss, but it is so important because he writes, for we know that the law is spiritual. Now, why does he say the law is spiritual? And spiritual here does not mean what our culture says it means. I'm not sure what our culture says it means. But you hear the term all the time, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Okay? I have no idea what that means. Here, spiritual means something very, very specific. It means its origin is of the Holy Spirit, the one who was sent to activate the kingdom of God. The law, is, the, is its origin is of the Holy Spirit. And what is the main job of the Holy Spirit? Jesus himself told us in John chapter 16, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So let's ask ourselves the question, how does the law relate to Christ? Well, let's let scripture inform scripture here. We just started reading the Psalms in our community Bible reading. Yes, I even worked that in. And in Psalm 1, we read, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose, life, whose leaf does not wither. The man who is happy, the man who is blessed, 
who delights in the law of the Lord. The law that he, think about what we've been talking about, is inadequate for salvation, is not sufficient, he can't possibly keep it. The law that is totally insufficient and inadequate for overcoming indwelling sin. How are we in the world to delight in the law of the Lord? What needs to happen for us to delight in the law of the Lord? We have to see what the law actually is for, and that is pointing us to the gospel. Tim Keller gives the following biblical illustration. He talks about that place in John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he tells her that he can give her some water that would cause her to never thirst again. Notice how he is going after the heart and the longings and the aching to satisfy the heart. And she says, great, I would like to have some. And he says, you were looking at him. I am that water. I am that living water. Well, how can Jesus offer the living water to her and to us? It's because on the cross he experienced thirst. Remember one of his words from the cross was, I thirst. What was happening to him? Well, he wasn't a tree being planted by streams of water at that moment. He was becoming chaff. On the cross, he was being blown away, blown into oblivion, because he took the penalty that everyone who looks into the law feels. And so the Spirit, remember the law is from the Spirit, is taking from what is Jesus and declaring it to you. So in other words, the Spirit is taking the reality that Jesus took the penalty, the chastisement, the wrath, the punishment of the law, and it absorbed into himself. He took it all upon himself so that you would never have to. And if you would never have to, what can you do? See the law as an expression of God's heart, and you can enjoy it. You can delight in it because you're not accountable to it anymore because Jesus took it upon himself. And that that is the only thing that will lead you to actually love the law, see it as God's heart, and want to obey it. But obey it instead of a means to be accepted Now you're obeying it as a way to show and express love to God. See, if the gospel is not deep, deep music to you, if you're looking at your life and you're perfectionistic, you're performance-oriented, you're driven, you're joyless, you're critical, you see the evil in your heart, ask yourself, is is it precious to you that Jesus died? that he died for all the baggage, that he died for all the junk that you're so afraid to look at. See, that, then maybe you can say there is no good that dwells within me. You can say that without fear because you know you have Jesus. And Jesus stood in your place. Jesus took your place on the cross. You have Jesus and he really loves you. And he will not depart from you. He will not lose you, and you cannot lose him. And the more you look to Jesus, crying out in your heart, Abba, Father, drinking from him, you can actually delight yourself in the law of the Lord. And say with Paul, the law is spiritual. Oh, I don't obey it. I don't understand what I do. The very thing I hate, 
That's what I do. The thing I don't want to do, guess what? Like a magnet, I'm going there. But you have Jesus. Meditate on him. Let's pray. Lord, oh, that we would see that the legal are being declared righteous. Our justification can also become personal. The Holy Spirit in our heart crying out, Abba, Father. Teach us to meditate on him, to drink deeply from him, to feast on him. He is our living hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the grace of God in a time of prayer. We will pray in unison the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Sovereign God, our most precious, heavenly, and loving Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that you have dominion over all things, that you are holy, that you are God, that you are Lord, and there is no other. We hallow your name. We set it apart as holy. We thank you that although the world rages around us, there is nothing that catches you off guard. You're surprised by nothing, that you are sovereign and preeminent and supreme over all things. We long for your kingdom and we pray for it to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for our relationship with you to be restored. We pray for our relationships with others to be healed. We pray for our relationship with ourself, that we would become more fully human. And we pray for our relationship to the world, that we would display how beautiful and believable you are. We humbly ask for our daily bread, and we ask that you would forgive us. For there is nothing good that dwells within us. That is in our flesh. So we constantly need healing, redemption, restoration. And then, Father, as you continually forgive us, may we forgive our debtors. And Lord, we pray for those in our midst who are hurting, those who've suffered loss, those who are going through pain and trial and affliction, those who are going through confusion and doubt. Lord, we ask that you would comfort them. We ask for your mercy to be upon them. We ask, Lord, that you would meet them in their need. And Father, we humbly ask that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil that is within us. For we acknowledge that yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So may you forever increase in our lives. May we decrease that you may increase. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as we close our service, let's sing our closing hymn this morning.
friends, now may you receive the Lord's blessing, the Lord's benediction, so that as you leave here having received God's favor and God's blessing, you can be a blessing to the world. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Thank you.